0: Okay, hello there everybody, good day, and welcome back to another episode of Merged Worlds, my Dungeons & Dragons story stream podcast series. Uh, For those of you just tuning in, uh, this is, uh, Merged Worlds is a homebrew Dungeons & Dragons world that I created, have been working and running and playing on uh, for over 30 years at this point. Um, and I am sharing the story of that campaign and uh, what's happened after. So uh, thank you all for coming by. I appreciate you swinging in and giving this a listen, whether you're uh, checking this out on the video uh, podcast on YouTube or later on on any of the audio podcasts, uh, iTunes, Spotify, and everywhere else you get your podcasts. I appreciate you tuning in and giving it a listen. Um, as usual, we'll begin uh, with a just a brief recap of where we left off. Oh camera got fuzzy, and then we'll jump into some new stuff. Um, we are continuing on with the story going on in Serenity right now. Um, and the, uh, tonight will be primarily about Mercy and Darsh Dandy and her allies, uh, as they go on to take on the beholder that has been plaguing the area northwest of Serenity, uh, near the town of Kenderholm. So, um, that's pretty much the basic story. Uh, they, everybody was hanging out in Serenity, as they normally do. Uh, Darsha was a visiting uh, when uh, the mayor or leader of the Kender village uh, arrived, uh, asking for their help, that there was a beholder sighted north of their, their area, and that several Kender had already fallen prey to it. Um, Mercy uh, gathered several of her knights, uh, Deben, Flynn, and Seamus, uh, Dandy and Michael came. Darsh came, since he was there anyways, as well as Artemis, who has with her um, Percy, who's head of the, uh, her personal guard, the Templars in her temple, and uh, several different Templars. Uh, they also summoned several mages from the Mage Tower, including their friend Fia, and um, Bentius, who is a mage that Mercy asked for specifically. A mage, who uh, pre-powerful mage, but who specifies in wards and um, things of that nature, uh, which seems odd to most everyone else that they would she would ask for him in a situation like this. But Mercy has bigger concerns that this uh, beholder may in itself be part of a larger issue that Bentius understands. So they headed uh, northwest, scooching around the Kendertown for their own safety. Uh, It's never fun or safe marching through a kender town (laughs) because you will lose most of your stuff, and some people will go insane. Uh, It's uh, kender lifestyle is not for the faint of heart. Uh, But after traveling for a ways and heading there, they finally narrowed down and and came to an area that they believed it may be holding up, and they were correct. Uh, There's a very large hill, and on the top of that hill... Was ruins uh, from what was a fort or castle very long time in the past? They don't know who built it or how long. Most of it is just uh, the remnants of the walls. Most of the ceilings and such are gone, but the central part, the what would have been the main chamber of the castle, is still relatively there. It's the only part that has a ceiling. And so, Dandy, being the quietest and sneakiest of the uh, members in the party went in herself to kind of scout the area, and uh, she found that in the there's a large courtyard in front of that part of the building I just mentioned, and where the front door would have been is now just a big hole that's been uh, smashed or has fallen out. It's hard for her to tell if it's new or not without getting closer. While she was hanging out uh, there, she saw that there was a part of an animal's corpse, and sure enough, the beholder came out of that big hole to get it. And then Dandy hid back behind the wall as to not get caught. Uh, And to say that she was surprised by what she saw would definitely be a bit of an understatement. You have to remember that Dandy, Mercy, Darsh, and Artemis have fought a couple of different beholders in their adventures throughout the years. um, Including some deep under the ocean, inside of a living city. Uh, and then just some regular kind as well. So they have some experience dealing with Beholders. They've defeated them before. So for Dandy to be a little astounded by what she saw is pretty important. So that's where we we are going to be starting off today. Uh, We're going to be going right from uh, where Dandy has returned, uh, snuck back out again, and returned back down the hill to the forest. Uh, I want to explain that that hill itself is surrounded by forest, but the hill does not have many trees on it at all. What are there? Probably just small things where seeds and such may have blown up there. But um, definitely not planted. It's a very defendable position, which is probably why it was chosen by whoever built there originally. As to why the castle fell into ruins, or who lived there again, no one has any idea. That was long before the merge happened and Serenity existed, and there's nothing there that would point to its history. Uh, most everything is pretty much uh, anything inside paper or things like that, anything would have been a book or scroll, um, was left to the elements. So that stuff's all destroyed there. Um, Mercy has had scouts in the area before who have seen it. She knows of it, though she'd not really been there herself. And that's kind of why she came in this direction, as it's the only thing she knows of in this area. They are well outside of Serenity's borders uh, at this point. Uh, so they are an open country claimed by basically nobody. Alright, so there's going to be a lot of reading today. I wrote a lot uh, now that my stream schedule has cut back a little bit. It's allowing me more time to put into writing and preparing for things like this. Oh, my camera keeps getting fuzzy today. Come on, stop being fuzzy. Finger, finger, finger. Yeah, it'll fix. Uh, So I'm going to start reading now. We've got a fair bit of it. All right, here we go. Mercy was astounded by the size of the beholder. Okay, it was nearly 20 feet in diameter and the largest she had ever seen. Aside from just its size, there were other things that set it apart. Where she'd expected to see thick, scaly skin covering its body, instead, the beholder had thick, overlapping plates, much like plate mail. It appeared natural, but even from the distance Mercy, Darsh, and Dandy were watching it, it appeared very sturdy and very thick. The Beholder floated a couple feet off the ground, using its natural magical abilities to move about. It had no arms or legs, only a group of long, thin eye stalks protruding from the top of its body. Dandy had counted nine of them, surprisingly few, considering the size of the beast. So, um, again, Beholder, big floating ball, big mouth, one giant eyeball, that's it. And on the top, it has little eye stalks that kind of pop off the top with eyes at the end of them. Um, The eyes themselves in most Beholders have the ability to do things. Um, The central eye of a primary Beholder uh, would have the ability, an anti-magic ray or aura, to snuff out magic. And then the different tentacles themselves have spell-like abilities. Not all Beholders have the same ones. There are many different types of Beholders. uh, And this is one they've never come across. Lex says there's a... that's a beholder that comes from Mom's House Full of Food. It's, it's, good. it's a big one. It's exceptionally large. Um, again, with big, fig heavy, almost like plates around its skin. Although, again, they look natural. It doesn't look like it's wearing any type of armor of any kind. It's just a very tough-shelled type thing. So at this point, what I'm describing is Dandy, Darsh, and Mercy have now snuck back in, and they're getting a look at it. They need, They want to see it themselves to better assess what's going on. Holders floating around the courtyard, hanging out, and that's when they kind of see it. Now, the courtyard itself is probably going to be between 110, 120 yards square. Um, Remnants of the walls that went around there are there, and most of the walls are going to be higher than head height. While the ceilings have caved in, the walls aren't completely flat, they may be jagged on top or rocks have worn down over the years, but there's still the outer shape of the walls all still exists. The doors are gone, but the doorways are still there. So walking through the ruins, you could easily do. Um, Now, on a small section of the inside of one, uh, on, on the inner right hand side, if you're coming in the front gate, to look at this courtyard, there's a, a little bit of rubble to one side that looks like it's probably a small stable at some point. But again, it's been so long, most of the wood has fallen and crumbled and rotted away. Uh, but most everything else in the courtyard is just rocks, rubble, and then grass that's overtaken it over the time. It was probably cobblestoned at one point, the whole thing was. Um, maybe rock and dirt combo, but now plants have taken over most of it, although it's mostly grass. Uh, and shrubbery that would be there. There is, of course, several pools of blood from what were the beholders' meals at some point, maybe even a few stinky remnants of small pieces of food and or bone. As they watched, the monster slowly floated back through the hole in the wall, back into the only part of the keep still standing. After a moment, it was no longer visible. The three friends slowly and carefully climbed back down from their perch, careful to be as silent as possible. They made their way back down the hill to the rest of their group, hidden in the forests below. They shared what they'd seen with the group. There was a moment of silence while everyone considered the news. I've never heard of such a monster, said Jernin, one of the mages that had joined them on this mission. I don't know if such a thing has ever been seen. Darshan Mercy shared a look. I have, said the queen. She looked at Bentius the mage, who, did, who nodded knowingly. We must deal with this threat here and now," she continued. While more supported, while more support would be helpful, any delay could lead to this thing moving to populated areas. A threat of this magnitude could cause unlimited death and suffering. "We'll help too," said Polly. "My folk are the are the closest and most in danger." Polly again is the leader of the kenderhome area. "It is appreciated," replied Mercy. "Likely it will take all of us." What should we do? asked Fia. How do we even begin fighting such a thing? I have an idea, said Dandy, smiling. Darsh groaned in dread. So, like, we have to deal with this now. Well, it would be great to send back for an army and have a lot more men and more wizards and all that kind of stuff. Um, but it took days to get here, close to a week. And going home and coming back again and gathering those people and so on and so forth. Who knows what it could do? It may not be here. We come back. It could have moved on. It could have moved down to Kenderholm, Might have come closer to Serenity, putting our people in danger, or might have wandered off in another area, threatening the lives of other people. And uh, you'll remember the closest other city or, or populated area north of Serenity is the lands that's now home of their drow allies from several adventures back. The ones that helped settle into the lands that used to belong to Fia's people. Um, Fia the mage, who's their friend who's visiting, who's, who's on this mission with them. Um, they're still a good distance away. It would take a couple weeks to travel there. But still, if it decided to wander north, their allies up there would be the next in danger, because uh, there's not much else populated in the, in the area that they're in right now. So Dandy has a plan. Masterful plan that, of course, uh, never bodes well for Darsh. Danny's plans usually usually uh, involve some type of uh, uh, mess that will get Darsh in trouble one way or another, uh, and this one should probably be no different. Um, so we're going to jump right into that. So Danny tells her plans to the group, and while many of them don't like it, they understand that this could work. And Mercy is like, I don't have anything better than this. Do you think you can pull it off? And Dandy and Polly nod, smiling very greatly. So we move into that. Dandy and Polly moved through the rubble into the courtyard of the keep. They moved in the open, not hiding their movements. They stopped just inside the courtyard, across from the hole in the wall, within, uh, which the beholder lie within. So they just went walking up through the front gates, two kender ladies, walked right into that courtyard, and as soon as they went in, there, they stopped, and they're staring at this big hole in the wall with what was the last remaining part of the keep. "'Oh, great lord of eyes!' cried out Dandy. "'We have come to speak with you.' There was a moment of silence. "'Think it's still in there?' whispered Polly. A voice echoed from the darkness, deep and threatening." speaking words in a language the two kender did not know. "'Uh, can you say that again, please?' asked Dandy. "I "'I didn't quite catch all that.' The huge beholder floated into view, visible, but still within the keep. "'Why have you come here?' it asked in the common tongue. "'Only death will you find.' Dandy took a step forward. "'We have come to offer you a gift.' "'and to bargain for our survival.' "'The beholder chuckled, a horrible sound. "'I do not bargain with the likes of you. "'What could you ever have that I'd want?' "'Its huge, slimy tongue licked its lips, "'showing two rows of huge, razor-sharp teeth. "'It floated, uh, floated several steps closer towards them. "'Magic!' cried out Polly quickly. "'And feasts! Food and meat!' All you could ever want. The beholder stopped halfway through the hole in the wall. It narrowed its huge central eye. Speak quickly, it said, before you lose my interest. My people live not far from here, said Polly. You have already killed a few of them. We're not many, but we are capable. We are trained hunters, and there's plenty of game to be found in the area. Now, You could eat us, I suppose, she continued, but we are tiny, barely a snack to being such as great as you. We wouldn't last long, and then you'd be back to catching deer and such, a poor waste of what is your valuable time. Let us hunt for you, said Dandy. We can bring you all the meat you wish, wine as well. We make quite a a bit every year. You would have no need to hunt again, (laughs) Lex says, oh yeah, food, the universal bribe of everything. There you go. And magic, right? Uh, You would have no need to hunt again. The beholder floated silently, appearing to consider it. And magic, it said. You spoke of magic. Of course, said Polly. And treasure. My people come across items of magic all the time, as well as coins and valuables. You know, you'd be amazed what people are always dropping or losing. Well, I remember this one time I was talking to an ogre when suddenly Dandy elbowed her, cutting her off. <laughs> uh, we have no need of such things, said Dandy. They end up just lying around gathering dust. I'm sure they'd be much more helpful in your capable ha- or, uh, possession. In fact, I have several magical daggers on me right now I could give you. And Dandy slowly pulls her dagger of flame. And another dagger out, that's a very ma- magical dagger, technically it be a dagger plus five, one of the first heavy magical uh, weapons she- the party ever found. She kind of holds them up for inspection it bursts into flame. You can clearly see it's magical. And she slides them back into her sheaths. So they're like, hey, we'll bring you food all the time, every day. You don't have to go out and bother hunting yourself. You can dedicate your time to whatever thing eyeball giants do with their time. And we'll bring you money, treasure, all this stuff. We don't need it. We're Kender. We don't care about that. Now, this beholder acts very much so that it doesn't quite know what Kender are. Most people seeing a Kender, who have never seen a Kender before, might think it's a short elf or some kind of halfling, which very often it's confused as Kender. The annoyance and things that Kender bring, uh, it it doesn't seem to be uh, aware of that. So it's considering, he looks at it, and the beholder says, your people are small and crunchy. Said the beholder after a moment, not a meal in the slightest. And I will need a fair amount of coin before I move on and rebuild. Too much time has passed. You will bring me food and drink in large quantities every day, and every coin and item of magic you possess. Then... "'You will go find more for me. "'Fail me in this, and I will tear the lives from your small bodies, "'you and all of your kind.' "'Dandy and Polly both bowed. "'Thank you, Great One, for sparing us. "'I swear we shall serve you well. "'We have already brought you your first meal.' "'Turning, Dandy called back, "'Bring it in, boys!' "'Darsh and the other two, Kender walked into the courtyard.' Darsh's armor and gear were gone. He wore only his kilt and a fine pair of boots. Over his shoulder, he carried the corpse of a large buck. As he laid the deer down before Dandy and Polly, the beholder spoke again. What is this? it asked. Saliva dripped from the monster's large mouth. Darsh couldn't tell what made the beast hungrier, the deer or himself. Who, this? said Dandy. Oh, that's just Darsh. "'He lives with us. Found him almost dead in a ditch a few years back. "'Saved his life, I did. "'Now he does all the heavy lifting for us and helps reach things on top shelves. "'He's mute and terribly clumsy. "'You can't count the amount of times he spilled the butter.' "'Darsh couldn't help but roll his eyes. "'His kind I know,' said the beholder. "'Strong fighters. I may have use for one with such talents.' "'The beholder floated further into the courtyard.' But we will speak of that in the future. Now, though, I shall eat this tasty treat. Watch, so that you might know the cost of failure. So Darsh has come in. He's not wearing any of his armor. Doesn't have any of his weapons or backpacks or any of that kind of stuff. Uh, He doesn't want to come in looking threatening. He's playing the part of a mute who can't speak or maybe can't hear. They ain't quite going to deal, but they said, oh, yeah, we we found him. We saved him years ago. and Now he lives with the Kender, doing all the heavy stuff kind of repaying us, if you will, kind of more of like, almost like a servant. Darsh is playing that part, mostly because there's no way the Kendr could carry in any, uh, any large amounts of meat. They're going to need Darsh for that. So the Beholders thought about their deal, and he's like, okay, yeah, we can do this. You're going to bring me money, you're going to bring me any magic items you get a hold of, and you're going to go out and actively seek for more. I'm going to kill all of Because he says, I'm going to need a lot of coin if I'm going to rebuild. It's been a long time. That's an important note. That's something, of course, they took note of as well. As the beholder floated up to Darsh and the dead deer, every instinct in Darsh's body screamed at him to run. But he stood still, with a numb expression doing his best to appear simple. The beholder sniffed the corpse. With what nose they couldn't tell. And then, with one last lick of its disgusting lips, it tipped and grasped it with its mouth. It doesn't have hands, right? So it tips forward and grabs it with its jaws. So it's going to bite half it. So half it's hanging out of its mouth while it begins chewing and chomping on this. Blood and gore splattered onto Darsh as it chewed with its mouth open, ripping the deer in two. A moment later, it bent over to pick up the second half of the corpse. As it pulled it into its gaping maw, Darsh saw the moment he'd been waiting for. With a flick of his wrist, the small magical charm bracelet on his arm released his magical broadsword from within into his hand. Gotta remember, Darsh, Darsh has had this forever, Right? Mercy has her morning star with a ring, magical ring on that teleports it back to her hand anytime from any distance anywhere in the world. It just has that it's limitless range, but it only works on that one weapon. The way it works is there's two rings. One you place on the weapon, it'll adjust. It literally will change size. It can go on a sword hilt, it could go on a spear, it could go on anything. You wear the matching ring on your hand, and it will always be able to pull that weapon through. And only the person wearing the ring can remove the ring from the weapon. So if Mercy left it at the castle and somebody came in and picked it up, they can't take that ring off. For all intents and purposes, it becomes a solid piece part of that weapon. Destroying the weapon though will then make the ring fall free, if it is a weapon that is capable to be destroyed. Darsh has a bracelet that looks like a charm bracelet. It's a little it's like a thin gold chain, but it's overwhelmingly sturdy and it has small little charms that hang off it that don't have specific shapes, so it's not like you know, a cat, or a bird, or a unicorn, anything like that. But it almost looked like small runes or symbols. And there are six charms on the bracelet. And the magic of the bracelet is that a weapon of any kind can be stored in one of those charms. Saying the command word will put that weapon basically into the bracelet. And by saying the command word, there are six, one for each charm, that particular weapon will basically appear in his hand. Now, he can put it back in again at any time, but if, the, if he has to be holding in his hand to do that. If something happens and he's fighting and the sword hits the ground, you can pop out another weapon, but he has to pick that back up to put it back in. Um, and you can pull out all six, and he can put different ones in. It's whichever he wishes to do. So his is a little bit more uh, freedom because he's carrying them with him. But the range thing, he has to be wearing the bracelet visibly. So with a flick of his wrist, small magical charm bracelet on his arm released its magical broadsword. Darsh's magical boots thrust him forward with a burst of speed, and he drove his blade deeply into the beholder's central eye. You've got to remember Darsh is wearing a pair of boots of charging. A magical pair of boots that will let him surge forward very quickly um, once. It has a cooldown. Um... Most commonly, it's used to get initiative in a battle. If he can use his boots to charge in unaware, if somebody doesn't know he has them, catch someone unaware and get uh, first initiative. Um, but he's moving fast, and if he can trip over something, it's going to hurt him, that kind of thing. It doesn't make him immune to tripping. It just lets him surge forward. I believe it was a 10-foot dash uh, yeah. forward at a very fast speed. So he does that, and even though the thing's very close in front of him, he uses that momentum to push him forward, and with his own strength shoves his broadsword, and he has several, but this is the most powerful sword he has. He has a very strong broadsword plus four, that he shoves directly into the center of the eye as the thing's tipping down and grabbing and starting to chew up this other second half of the deer. So a fat guy, I feel it's a low-blow attacking someone while eating. Lex says, well, it's true, but, you know, get him while you can, right? The beholder let out a scream of anguish and pain, pulling back so hard the sword was pulled from Darsha's grip. Now screamed Polly, Dandy screamed out as well—not words, but a sound akin to a giant bird dying, "Wagaga gaga gaga" or something along those lines. So they yell out now, and Dandy's bird noise—the wagaga gaga—which has been around forever—and then immediately. Mercy and the other warriors and mages all pop up from around the walls, right? They're hiding beside the walls on both sides of this courtyard. The melee fighters, like Mercy and her knights, are going to be hopping over the walls as, long as, as well as some of the soldiers. She brought a group of her warriors with her, just you know, generic soldiers. NPCs 1 through 10 kind of thing. <laughs> as well as her knights come rushing forward. Um, as well as Michael, who's there, Dandy's husband, and Percy is going to rush forward with one of the Templars. The other three Templars are going to stay back at the wall with Artemis, where the other mages and clerics are staying. So there's a couple mages and clerics on each side. The goal being is to catch the Beholder in between them. Spells coming from both sides, clerics to support both sides, and melee rushing in from both sides. So they had planned this, and this was their thing. So Mercy and the others climb over the walls and start rushing forward. Now several of the Mercy's people would be uh, archers so there's people in the back firing bows and arrows and things as well, all firing at uh, uh, the Beholder. Mercy, uh, Mercy, Devin, Seamus, Flynn, Percy, and several soldiers and Templars rush in, Michael. Um, and then of course as they begin casting their spells, their mages, the Beholder immediately starts casting some as well. It's centralized out of commission. It's been blinded in That regard, but it can see out of all of its eyes, limited from the eye stocks, but it does have some vision, and so those start casting spells at different people. Darsh immediately uses his charm to pull out another weapon and begins attacking again, him being the closest, Dandy and Polly rushing in as well as the other Kenders. So the reason they were able to hide as well as they did, and not be sensed by the Beholder, because the Beholders have to be actively seeking for magic. They can't sense it, but they do have pretty good hearing. Um, is that Bentius' ward used the ward of, of protection on them to help silence them. Um, making them harder to detect. Um, it is a ward spell that exists in Merge World. Tobias has used it in the past. It's not a original D&D one, but... Uh, it's, it's one that I created as well. I have a list of spells that I've created specifically with Merge Worlds for both uh, clerics and uh, mages. Uh, and, magic, and tons of magic items as well. And I slowly dip those out to players as we move on. So yeah, this now Darsh is in there chopping at the front of this thing. People are at the back, people at the side. Everybody's rushing in. Um, a lot of stuff going on. And Lex is correct. It is also hard to concentrate when you're eating. So it'd be harder to catch the other stuff. So, a battle basically ensues. Um, very quickly, one of the mages who's casting a spell at the beholder gets struck by a beam from one of the eye stalks. And its flesh of the mage just immediately starts to harden and he's turned to stone, which is one of the many spells the eye stalks can cast. Um, magic missile like energies are fired from some of the others, hitting Percy and Seamus. Slowing them, but not stopping. So, you got to imagine this is a huge floaty ball in this courtyard. Who just got stabbed in the face? That's going to catch everybody off guard too. So it's attacking and probably chomping and biting and such as well. But it it normally doesn't have to. It relies mostly on its magic to fight. And so its eye stocks are doing the heavy lifting at this point. The heroes are aware of this as well. So for the melee. With a creature this big, the closer they can get into it, the harder it's going to be for stocks in the middle of the head to be able to see around its own bulbous body at them. Because um, it's floating a good two, two and a half feet above the ground. Um, so they're going to rush in and start attacking. Now, you got to remember, though, this thing has that armored-plated kind of body. And so a lot of their weapons, while doing some damage, is very much mitigated. It's not anywhere near as much as they normally would. The battle begins and a couple of, of the war, uh, regular soldiers start to fall very, very quickly, uh, come targeted by spells and so on, and as we mentioned, we lost one of our mages. Fia stands and begins casting a spell of her own, and she targets the eye stock in the center of the creature's uh, head, so the one in the top in the middle. She targets this one specifically, and she casts a spell called Darkness 15-Foot Radius. It's a traditional D&D spell that has been in there for a very long time. You target on a specific thing, place, whatever, and it creates a ball of darkness, 15-foot radius, that no light can shine through. By targeting the topmost center eye stock, this thing's 20 feet radius, right? That's or 20-foot diameter, I said. It's really only going to be blocking the top of the head of this, which means the eye stocks are going to have a difficult time seeing. Down on the lower sides, where everybody's whacking at it, or from a distance, people shooting at it, so on and so forth. They're still able to see the beholder just fine, but it does limit the eye stalks, which now are just casting spells randomly through the darkness, uh, losing aim and things of that nature. As I mentioned, the melee attacks are working; they're attacking, they're fighting, and such. But it's not having as much effect as they would hope, uh, especially blunt weapons. Those who are using hammers, like Seamus, or morning stars, like Mercy. The morning star, you know, got the little spiky bumps on it and such, a little bit, most of it's just hitting against a heavy plate, right? It's not doing stuff. Some of the blades, if they're stabbing up under the plates, are having a little bit better effect. The only weapon that seems to be cutting through the plates with ease is Menondra. Even though this thing is not undead, Menondra is an overwhelmingly powerful uh, artifact. It's the spear that Michael wields, uh, the intelligence spear. Um... At this point, Michael and Menander have not merged. His hair, you know, when, when they when they go full beast mode, his hair goes all white, and purple smoke comes out of his eyes, and they they talk as one. And they, you know, we say this, they say, you know, so on and so forth. Um, but they only do that when they're fighting undead. dead. It's an artifact created specifically to fight undead, and that's when it's its most powerful. Um, the rest of the time, he's just using it as a regular spear, and Menander might still throw some comments his way, like, "Hey, look out!" or you know, get behind that rock, you know, that kind of stuff. Because uh, it does have the ability to sense some things. Uh, but only Michael hears that. No one else hears Monander. So if Menandra gives bad advice, uh, they don't really know if Michael's saying that. She said it or not. It could be Michael just trying to cover his own lies. They'd believe him, but it'd still be funny. Um, <laughs> so Monander is doing successful damage there. Um, uh, so, oh, we've got a question here Elephant Monk have a na- Naginata, halberd with a skin. Build. Yep. Uh, a naginata is what was used by uh, Dagoden, the guy that uh, was leading the army that attacked Serenity early on, kind of dueled uh, Mercy in the Battle of Serenity Valley. And then when she was imprisoned and the, uh, put in as a gladiator in the Oromanian Games... In the final fight, that's who she ended up fighting again. And that's what he used as his weapon. So I have definitely used them in DD myself. Uh let's see. Melee attacks working. Most of the arrows that are shot are just bouncing off. They're not really having any effect. Um, sling stones and such the same way, which is what a couple of the kender were using. Those are just bouncing off using their hoopacks without any work. So The central eye at this point is useless. It can't see out of it. There's a sword sticking out of it. And blood and this greenish-yellow pus is leaking from the sword down its eye, into its lips, and into its own mouth. It's very gross. Mercy finds that her attacks aren't doing very much against the body, decides to retarget, and swings hard at the eye, specifically the sword. Garsh might not be real happy about that, but her thought is, oh, if I hit the eye, I do damage. If the eye and the sword, I just shove it in and do twice as much damage. Victory. So Mercy swings hard with her morning star and manages to strike the eye and catch the sword enough that it drives it in a little bit further as well. It's incredibly painful. It yells out again, but it quickly spins towards which Mercy, uh, which you would be able to tell where she is. From, even though it may not be able to see her from the direction of the attack. The pain's on this side. This is where I'm going to go. Uh, so she swings out of the morning star and hits it. The, it spins and attacks her, this time claws at her for her mouth. So he, it's reaching out to try to bite her. It can't see her, but he knows it's in front, right? So it's going to try to chomp. Mercy hits it, and all of a sudden, raw. It's, it's very reactive. It's smack, ow, raw. Very quick. And as it it reaches out to grab Mercy, Seamus, who's fighting next to her, grabs her and pulls her to the side. But by doing so, puts himself in way of the monster. The beholder's teeth close and grab him by his shoulder. Right here. One whole arm in its mouth. And they hear it crunching as as the jaws close and the teeth come to, to shut. And it shakes and literally tosses Seamus... Across the courtyard. The thing's very strong. So he managed to pull her just at a time, but by getting gripped himself. Seamus goes flying through the air, landing good 30 feet away, rolling across the courtyard. Blood squirting from his wounds. Artemis and the Templars guiding her rush towards him immediately. They're the closest. As Artemis arrives, she sees that the man's right arm is completely gone, as is a chunk of his shoulder. Let's see. (laughs) So he's just blood squirting everywhere. And Artemis immediately begins casting some of her strongest healing spells to try to stop the flow of blood and save the man's life. Mercy enrages at this sight of her friend getting tossed across. Seamus is one of her knights, one of her oldest allies, someone that means a lot to her. So she immediately begins just wailing on the beholder as hard as she possibly can, specifically the eye, over and over again. Again, the beast reaches out with its jaws, as if to try to bite her. But this time, it's Darshu steps in the way. And he grabs the thing by its mouth, top and bottom. And he's literally holding the mouth open. Um, He's grabbing it more by its lips. Again, it's plated. It's hard. It's not just gummy lips like I have. But he's grabbing it, and he's holding its mouth open at this point. And he's trying to keep it from being able to close it. Because by catching that, he saved Mercy... But now he's kind of in a position. If I let go of this, it's going to chomp me. He doesn't want that either. Darsh is incredibly strong. We've, we've talked about this before. When it comes in D&D stats, he's at the highest you can possibly get for strength by this point. I think, If I remember correctly, he was rocking a 24-25 strength. Um, a couple of that will not be active at this moment because some of that does come from some of the gear he's wearing. But when he's fully... Pimped out in his gear, he's, he's rocking a 24 25 strength, um, which in second edition is you know storm giant strength at this point, cloud giant strength. It's massive. Um, so he's trying to hold the mouth open. Uh, everyone's just again going to town on this thing, and it's, it's bleeding from multiple wounds. Once they realize they can start stabbing up and through the plates, um, the melee fighters started to do a little bit better. Um, where are we at here? Yes, Darsh is holding, it, holding the thing open. The creature's slimy tongue slaps against his arms and his chest. So this big job- of- the Hut slimy tongue, just trying to push him, or let go of him, kind of thing. And, he, and he, Darsh starts to feel his own strength beginning to slip. when suddenly a glowing something glowing in purple shoots past him. Michael had stepped up beside him and taken Menander and basically stabbed through the open mouth into the top of it, its mouth and up into what would be, the, hopefully, the brain area. is a very long spear. Michael's a very short guy. He's barely taller than a kender most times. Um, so he comes in and he's... And he just stabs it with the one weapon that's working the best, right? And there's no plates inside the thing's mouth. It's more softy, squishy tissue. So right up inside of there. The beholder shrieks and pulls away from Darsh and from Michael, who Menandra slips from his own grip with, as the blood and pus and ooze is all running down his arms and slobber and all that kind of stuff. So the creature shrieks and tries to turn and flee to what it believes is the, the hole in the wall to the keep. But the attacks keep coming, and after just a couple more moments, the creature's body falls to the ground. Because again, it's got a menandra shoved in its mouth at this point. You can imagine, it can't even close its mouth. It's a very long spear. And if it does, it's just pushing it harder up into its brain. The beholder finally falls to the ground, but it's still alive. So they don't stop and continue beating on it until there's absolutely zero signs that this thing has any life left in it at all. So uh, parts of this thing become pulp. You can imagine at this point they can get to the squishy bits a little bit easier, uh, which is going to be underneath as well as its mouth, eye, as we've talked before. Areas that aren't covered by the hard exoskeleton plate of whatever type of beholder this is. Finally, the creature gives its last breath and with a gurgling slobber lays dead upon the courtyard ground. Um, Darsh and Michael each retrieve their weapons disgusted at their condition. It's completely covered in nastiness. And then spend the next little few minutes doing their best to try to clean them off. Clerics, of course, immediately rush in and start seeing to the injuries of those that can be saved. A couple more, uh, another warrior was injured. Deben was injured, but not too seriously. Mercy has a couple smacks of her own. Um, But overall, uh, they only lost, I want to say it was like five people from the group, including one of the mages. All the clerics made it through okay. But the clerics were extra protected and hiding behind the wall, throwing heals when they can. Now I'm going to take a quick moment, because I talked about this very long time ago in the beginning of Merge Worlds, but it's been a long time, so I'm going to address it again. Uh, in Merge Worlds, the way we play Dungeons & Dragons, the homebrew version I play, clerics can throw healing spells. Technically, at least in the second edition rules, to be able to cast a healing spell, you have to touch the person. You to Lay your hand on them, place your hand on them, your holy symbol, whatever the case may be. But you have to touch them. Um, yet, if you've ever played any video game, that's not how heals work, right? Um, so we wanted to find a happy medium there. So healing spells can be thrown, so tossed to a range... The range is determined, again, by the level of the cleric casting them. And they can only be tossed by clerics that are healing clerics specifically. And when they do it at a range, they only heal for half. So if I have a healing spell that's 2d8, I would roll two eight-sided, find the num- add them up, and then divide it by two. And that much, that's how much healing I could do at a range. Um, this does not negate the touch requirements for heavier healing spells, like heal itself, the spell heal. Um, that still has to be touched. But for cure light wounds, serious wounds, critical wounds, you can throw heals if you're a if you're a healer, specific. Um, other other types of clerics can cast heals, but they can only do it by touch. But a healing cleric can throw heals. Um, it's just makes it a little bit more reasonable for a cleric. Because you can't expect a cleric to be walking in the middle of the battlefield, right? That was always an issue I had with that. You know, if you've got hundreds if not thousands of people on both sides fighting in a war, the clerics either have to sit up at the tent and wait for somebody to bring them to them or be out there doing their best to heal people by touching them in the middle of battle. Doesn't make much sense either. But if you had a cleric surrounded by a ring of Templars whose life exists specifically to defend these clerics, and they're moving through the battlefield and it's able to throw healing spells and occasionally touch spells as needed, it would make a healing cleric much more versatile while at the same time healing clerics can't use any form of bladed weapons so they're not in there stabbing and slashing while they're doing this. They're limited to quarterstaffs, whips uh, and some blunt weapons. Uh, things Weapons that aren't intended to kill in the first blow because they're healers by nature, if that makes sense. So clerics have weapon limitations based on uh, what type of god or what type of cleric they are. Uh, That limitation is specialized to Merge World. I have a list for every god and what you're allowed to use. Uh, Lex asks, besides healing, is there another touch spell that can be ranged? That's a great question, and the answer is kind of. Yes, there's another spell that can be ranged, but it's not a different spell; it's the reverse. Because if a healer can throw heals, then someone, then a cleric of death can throw cause wounds, cause light wounds, cause serious wounds, cause critical wounds. Right? If I'm gonna let the healers throw, I gotta give it to the other side of the spectrum. That's the way that I viewed that. So a cleric of death would have the ability to throw. Damaging spells, like, again, because normally to cause light wounds, cause, you still had to touch. But you can do half the damage by throwing it. Again, making them more versatile on the battlefield. They've got their own Templars or somebody guarding them, and they're targeting, they're hurting spells on somebody who's doing real well. That warrior's killing a lot of people. Things of that nature. So, you know, you gotta take the bad with the good. If I'm gonna get, let the good people have perks, I'm gonna give the bad people perks as well. So that was the only one that we ever did of that nature. Um, That's not to say I wouldn't be open to revisiting more if I had a player come to me and said, hey, this is why I think this type of cleric should be able to use this spell more to range than a touch. Uh, We could definitely visit it, um, but if I'm going to do that clerically, it's going to be on both sides of the spectrum. The balance must be maintained, if you will, between darkness and light. So that's kind of how I put that together. Um, I have altered other spells in different ways, but those are the only ones I can think of off the top of my head that uh, allow you to throw. But it it definitely made Artemis much more useful without always having to her to be in the middle of danger. If they're out there fighting a beholder, just the four of them, which has happened, the last thing they want is Artemis on the front lines attacking things, right? Let her stand in the back a little bit and do what healing she can, although she usually does try to stay close so she can heal as she can. It's not always that way. Um, it makes sense how you could protect your clerics that way and still let them be useful. Other than just hanging out in the medic tents, being M.A.S.H. That's a TV show for you young people. <laughs> um, yeah, we've tweaked a lot. In my game Merge Worlds is very homebrew. There are a lot of alterations uh, that we've made, which, so far, it's been with working with players and finding things that worked, and some things that wouldn't work, we revert back. Um, I'm not against trying things, Um but, you know, I want it to be fair. I don't want to overpower or underpower anybody. Well, anyways, went a little bit of a tangent there, but I wanted to talk about throwing heals because the clerics were doing that during the fight. Uh, But Artemis, that's why Artemis ran into Seamus because she's going to have to use some much heavier heals with the damage he took. She's going to want to get the full brunt of those. Um, So there's that. So uh let's see what we got here. Um... Uh, Artemis. Okay, so they go. Of course, Mercy rushes over to check on Seamus, as she would. Artemis has managed to stop the bleeding and has somewhat healed the wound. This is a huge injury. The man is still alive, but it's very, very, temper- uh, very, very weak. If you would, if you're testing pressure and such, so it's she's managed to somewhat heal over the wound. But it's still very weak. It's going to look like very soft tissue. You could probably take your finger, poke it hard, and go right through it. It's just meant to stop the bleeding and to stop anything like sickness or things of that nature getting into it. Right? You don't want infection and such. So it, she managed to heal it over, but he's lost a lot of blood. Because you heal somebody, doesn't necessarily put blood back in them. That's not exactly how heal spells work. That's been a debate in the past. Uh, with, with vampires. Like, hey, if a vampire heals this person, does he refill him again? Can I drink from him again? No, you can't drink. You're, he's, you're not refilling a juice pack. That's not how that works. <laughs> you're sealing the hole you poked in, but it doesn't put more juice back in the, the juice pack. Uh, but Seamus is, is very, very weak, and Artemis is like, hey, I've, I've done what I can here, but we really need to get him back to Serenity. I really need to get him back to the temple, because you'll remember... Clerics of healing casting spells on the temple because it is sanctified ground, not just holy ground, sanctified ground. There's a, there's that secret pool of water down under in the cavern underneath because this is lands that were blessed by the god. That's why they built the whole of Serenity here, is because of that. Artemis inherited that uh, that lake which are known as um, Tavian's Tears. Tavian being the god of healing, uh, Tavian's Tears is what the lake is called. And only a few people know about it, but her spells are much more potent, as are all healing spells on temple grounds. So if we can get him back, we can do even better. Um, let's see. Uh, there's a couple questions here. Uh, work that healing spell. You know, gotcha. Uh, lost like two liters of blood, almost half of the... Day. Yeah, it's true. Yeah, you lose a lot of blood. You got to get. You got to refill it somehow, or ta- or you know rest to let your body start reproducing it again. So they realize they're going to have to get home as quickly as they possibly can. Seamus is in a rough spot um, and now that they've taken care of the beholder everything should be good, right? But is it? She's not able to replace the arm. The arm is most likely lost permanently but he still could die if she can't get him home and get him some proper healing. She can probably keep him, as long as she's with him she can keep him alive till they get there as long as he's not attacked again or something. Um, but she needs to get him back home. As I said, they lost the mage, several soldiers, and there were multiple injuries, um, and the few most serious ones are able to be healed enough that everyone's going to be able to walk home, those who survive, They did have uh, horses when they were coming through here. They weren't all completely on foot. Uh, so they are able to make some um, temporary, uh, I can't think of what the thing is called, stretchers that they could pull beyond the horse that they could lay the injured on, uh, and as well as the bodies of those that they lost. So they determine they're going to need to get home as quickly as they can. But Mercy also understands the importance of what the mages come to her. And they're like, listen, we know we got to get home. Seamus needs to get home. We're not arguing that at all. But this is a beholder. And it's a beholder none of us have ever seen before. We really want to take some of this home. Right? Think about that. For magic components, spell creation, magic item creation. Beholder components, you can imagine. An eye stock or something. That's that's worth it. That's worth ten times its weight in gold, right? Um, so immediately the mages start getting in there, cutting and pulling in pieces, whatever they can, uh, gathering the pus and the blood and the, whatever they can get a hold of in tubes and uh, pouches and, and whatever else. Eye stocks, you can take. They're going to take every one of them eye stocks, um, but that type of thing. So they they mercy's like, okay, you, you, I can give you an hour. We got to put these. We're going to make these stretchers and get them ready to go and get everything set up. You've got about an hour to get what you can, but then we're leaving. Whatever's left could be for the birds, kind of thing. During that time, while they're inspecting, cataloging, and gathering what they can from the beholder, things that they feel would be of value, Mercy meets with one of them, Bentius and Darsh. They have a conversation. This whole event has kind of brought a little fear to them especially to Mercy and Ventius. And I've hinted at this multiple times. Would take tooth. De- teeth, sure. Teeth is another one. Probably pieces of the tongue, the saliva, anything you could think of that you can get a piece of. They're probably not going to walk away with much of that plate because they're, they're huge swaths of... of uh, almost, almost like shingles on a house is the way they lay, if you would. Um, it's kind of how I imagined them. And this is one I put together. I didn't take this one out of a monster manual. It's, it's specifically one I created a long time ago. Uh, but she meets with Bentius and Darsh, and they have a conversation, and they've all come to the same exact result. So, because of this, Mercy goes and speaks with Flynn. Flynn made it through pretty much unscathed. He took me a couple of scratches here and there, but overall, he's okay. Mercy charges Flynn to go with Bentius. She's going to take, take Bentius, they're going to take a cleric and another one of the mages. And they're going to travel northwest. Okay? They're going to travel northwest. He's going to take some of the soldiers, but they need to escort Bentius northwest. And Flynn, she tells Flynn where they're going, but everyone else, the cleric that Artemis assigns to go with them, soldiers, they only know that they are to guard Bentius, and that Flynn knows where they're going. So Flynn and Bentius are going to be traveling northwest somewhere, for a very important reason. And Bentius understands this is why he was brought along specifically. Can they cast Reduce to make the Beholder easily handle? Uh, Doesn't quite exist that way. Um, And on top of that, it's a magical type creature. It's naturally resistant against many magics. Uh, Beholders, just in general, have a very high uh, it would be, granted it's dead, so the saving throw would be much lower. Uh, But time is of the essence they really don't have time to prepare a lot of that, and Who wants to walk around carrying just a goopy (laughs) beholder? Plus, I could affect things, right? So no, they don't do that, or or it's possible none of the mages there have the capability to do that. Um, But no, that is not something that they did. They took what they could. So, Mercy gathers everyone else, lets them know that Bentius, Flynn, and several others will be heading northwest, although she uh, declines to explain exactly what. That's kept just within that very tight inner circle. As she she watched Bentius and his group fade into the forest heading northwest, Mercy prayed she was wrong. But deep in her heart, she knew better. She needed to get home as quickly as possible to begin preparations. This would not be the last monster they're going to have to face. The trip home took much longer than it did to get there. Even with Artemis' impressive healing skills, Seamus was still in recovery. Paulie and her friends left for their own homes partway back, promising to visit Serenity uh, as soon as they could, much to Darsha's concern. Finally, though, they made it back to Serenity successfully. So It took about twice as long almost to get back than it took to get there. Over the next few weeks, Seamus made a full recovery, though the loss of his right arm would be permanent. Miyasha doted over him uh, endlessly, which he didn't seem to mind in the slightest. With the loss of his sword arm, Seamus tried to step down from his position as a knight, but Mercy wouldn't hear it. She assured him his place at her table was always assured, and that she would adjust his responsibilities as he felt he needed. With the constant threat of Oramon and the new threat of greater monsters, Serenity became active in a way it hadn't since the last war. There was a feeling in the air a weight over everyone something was coming they just didn't know what draven and artemis were whole again he told her of his meeting with deacon the man in the hat it seemed like a weight had been lifted from him and a, uh, had been lifted from him a weight he'd carry for a very long time now he looked ahead determined to be ready for the day that came for when the day came that his son needed him so draven came back he got with artemis they had a conversation Apologize, apologize. I'm sorry I left. I'm sorry I didn't tell you. All that kind of stuff. And he's like, hey, I met with him. This is what he told me. Because he tells her everything. No reason to hide it. This is what he told me. Things are coming. Dangers are coming. And that we have to keep Serenity safe until the day that Seraph needs us. And that confirmation that Seraph was still alive, because they've been told, right? They've been told this whole time, oh, Seraph's going to make this choice one day. It'll be a big deal. All this stuff's going to happen. But they haven't seen him in a year and a half at this point, almost two years, right? So you got to imagine they're like, is he really alive out there? How do we know? But being assured that he was, in fact, alive by future Deacon uh, has kind of set their hearts a little bit at ease, knowing, especially when when Draven was told, hey, you're going to be standing by your son the day he has to make this choice. So that's going to happen. You just got to stay alive and protect serenity. And so Draven's focus now, instead of hunting down this danger and threat to his son, which is all he's done for 20 plus years, now his whole concern is I just have to protect my family at home. It's, 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 It's easier. It's much weight off his shoulders, if you will. So we're getting close to the end. I have one last little bit to read to end off today's episode. Uh, which will hopefully uh, set the tone for episodes to come. It was late afternoon when Mercy felt the crystal sphere start to pulse on the stand sitting on her desk. She was in her office alone. Stepping outside, she sent a guard to fetch her husband, but didn't have time to wait. She'd been waiting and dreading this for weeks. So you remember these small crystal spheres, like a little crystal ball, look very lightweight, but they're very strong and sturdy. Have the ability to communicate to others of its kind. And they only have a few of them, but they do use them to communicate. Darsh has one. uh, They have one in Serenity. And a couple different people have them. It's the same type of sphere that Kip happened to be talking to the Black Rose on, way off where they are. But they're very hard to make. They're very expensive. It's not something just the average person would have. Mercy, of course, being in league with the, the Mage Tower and being a queen, has several at her disposal for situations where they're needed. So she's had one sitting on her desk, and it starts to pulse and, with a light, which lets her know that someone's trying to communicate with her. And Darsh is living there with them at this point, still at this point. They haven't he gone home yet, so she knows who it is. Everybody else who has one is already here. Moving it in front of her, she gently tapped the sphere and spoke the command word. The image of Bentius appeared within. She was relieved to see him safe, but his expression told her what he was going to say. She could already see. "'My queen,' he said, "'our fears were correct. "'The vault has been breached. "'We arrived to find the doors open. "'I know you told us not to, but we needed to know the extent of the damage.' So we went inside. It's empty, my lady. All of the cells are open. So for those of you who've been listening to Merge World for a long time will likely know what I'm talking about. For those of you who maybe knew newer, might not. But there was a time very long ago, 18, 20 years ago, when Mercy and all of her allies went on what was a final mission to defeat the Emperor of Oramon. And to do that, they had to get into Oramon through uh, non-traditional ways. They had to stay hidden. And so they were led by Tobias. There was told there was a path that led through the mountains to the northwest. And they all traveled that way. And they found a pair of... When they got there, this road led to a set of giant doors stuck into the mountain itself, these big doors, that were slightly open. They went through them traveling through and there were some ghosts and puzzles they learned some storyline about what happened there but they entered into this big giant round like this big chamber which almost looked like theater seating all the way around, it got bigger going up with a bridge that crossed over with some stairs that led up and then those stairs that led up on each side could be used to reach each level and while investigating they realized that most of this level had what looked like glass and behind the glass were things lots of different scary things. Including one massive beholder behind one of them. And while they stared at it, its eye moved, and they realized that the things behind this glass were still alive, even though they weren't moving. The merge itself, the nature of it, caused shockwaves across all the New World, and cracks appeared in the spells and uh, makeup of this area that had weakened its protection and things were starting to get loose. And while they're in there, sure enough, several of the things managed to burst out and they had to flee, basically shutting the doors behind them on their way out on the other side, which is where they ended up in Orman. And They went on their adventure and they went on from that point and went off and fought the Emperor of Orman and Ormon and won. But then they eventually returned home. But Mercy never forgot about that, and that threat that was northwest of her, of her home. And so she sought out a mage through the mages, someone who could help her seal that vault in hopes of those things never getting out. Bentius was that mage, and he was sent up there, and he goes up there once a year to renew the spells to completely seal their side of the vault. The other side opens into Oromon, and they don't have any way to get to that side. It would take months of travel all the way around, plus traveling through lands that they consider hostile just to get to the other side of it. So the best that they could do is to try to keep their side sealed. And that big old beholder that Mercy and them had seen through the glass was the one that they just faced. But there were other large and scary things in there as well. How could this have happened? Asked Mercy. We were assured the wards would hold it closed. At least on this side. Again, they couldn't get to the other side. Hi, Buffy. The spells cast on the doors were the strongest in existence. He says in reply. Nothing inside would have been strong enough to break them. When we arrived, the doors had been blown open, nearly torn from their hinges. A blast of extremely powerful magic did this. What? I cannot say but I can tell you this the blast came from the outside the vault doors were blown inward Mercy leaned back in her chair shocked at the news something or someone had opened these doors and by doing so they'd unleashed a group of the most powerful and dangerous monsters in existence and now they were free Buffy wants some treats. <laughs> my kitty's climbed up here next to me. So Mercy realizes what's going on here. Something has busted those doors in. Something has let all of these things loose. Oh my goodness. And you'll remember when, when uh, Draven was speaking to Man in the Hat Deacon, he said that things are working against you. Things that will try to keep you busy. Things that will try to destroy serenity. Because serenity, surviving, is key, to is a big part of seraphs being successful in the future, going the way that it's supposed to. Serenity is a part of that. Serenity will always be a beacon of light in this world. So something is actively working against that. Some of you might have an idea who might be inspired to do something of that nature. There's a couple different people to think of, right? But someone or something powerful has blasted these doors open and let loose everything that was inside. And Mercy has a very strong feeling she hasn't seen the last of those things. But there we are. That's today's episode. We're right about in an hour where I'm shooting for nowadays. Um, So next episode, we are going to be doing a little tiny piece of Serenity. But we're also going to be stepping back to a little bit of the story of the kids again. Okay? So, you can expect to see a little bit more uh, flipping between all three. You know, before it was uh, between... Artists' group and, and Seraph's group and it kept going back and forth. Now it's going to bounce between the three of them because Seraph has this active thing going on as well. Or not Seraph. Serenity has this active thing going on as well that they're going to have to be dealing with. So we're going to see uh, sometimes both sec- both groups or two or three of the groups all in one story night. But uh, a lot of things are moving forward and some things are escalating that we will see the culmin- culmination of in the very near future. Alright? Um, But again, I would like to thank everybody who came and listened to my story today. I do appreciate it. Uh, I was very happy with this part of the story. Uh, I got to do a lot of little callbacks to old days, and uh, the vault is something I've been waiting to uh, bring back into the story for a very long time. Uh, And I knew this is how I was going to do it, so I was excited to finally reach uh, the next step into a storyline that I created 15 years ago, (laughs) it's fun to get to be able to pull those things out and say, Hey, remember when I started this? Here's the rest, here's some more of it. Where I didn't forget about it, it's just been waiting for its time to shine again. So, we're going to see a lot more of that fun stuff here moving in the future. Um, but uh, the next episode, of course, will be two weeks from today. I stream this every other Tuesday here on YouTube. Uh, And then, of course, it goes up on iTunes, Spotify, and such as quickly as I can get it up there. Uh, So if you have an iTunes, Spotify, or any of the podcast uh, accounts that you use, it would be awesome if you wouldn't mind giving us a follow over there. Uh, Give us the five stars and the likes. And uh, if you would like to leave a review, that would be phenomenal. Uh, Definitely, uh, the more interaction it gets over there as well, the more uh, those podcast networks will put my story in the ears of other people. And I just want to share it with as many people as I can. But that is going to do me for today. I hope you guys had a fun time. I had a fun time with you. And I hope you folks have a wonderful, wonderful couple of weeks. Okay, So come on back here in two weeks. And we will step into the next step of the Merge World Saga. Okay? Thank you guys for watching. You guys have a great day.